Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a weekly discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. Exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. This episode is sponsored by ManyTricks, makers of helpful apps for the Mac. Visit ManyTricks, or one word, .com slash pragmatic for more information about their apps. Butler, Chemo, Leech, Desktop, Curtain, TimeSync, Usher, Moom, Name Mangler, and Witch. If you visit the URL, you can use coupon code PRAGMATIC25, that's PRAGMATIC, the word, and 25 the numbers in the shopping cart, to save 25% on any ManyTrix product. This episode is also sponsored by Casper, new sponsor. They sell mattresses, but they do it online. Yes, they figured out how, and yes, they are great mattresses. It can save you lots of money. Visit casper.com slash pragmatic for more information and use the coupon code pragmatic for a special discount exclusively for pragmatic listeners. And our third sponsor for this episode is Hover. Hover is a domain registrar that stands apart from the rest. It's simple, easy to use, and understand with a valet service for your domain transfer, m- making it simply the best way to buy and manage your domain names. Check out Hover at hover.com pragmatic to find out just how easy it is to grab your own domain and transfer your existing domain to Hover using the coupon code EXACTLY to get 10% off your first purchase. Let Hover valet your domain stress away today. We'll talk about them more during the show. I'm your host, John Chigi, and I'm joined today by my guest host, Seth Clifford. How you doing, Seth? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, thanks for coming back on. Uh, only a few more episodes to go. I'm glad you could make it on before uh, before I wrap it up. So yeah. Um, today, um, I'm going to put a, a pre-apology out uh, to to the listeners. Um, I've had a really long week. I've been uh, doing a lot of driving uh, on about 350 miles of uh, pipeline, uh, inspecting different stations and so on along the way. Um, so I'm I'm a little bit fatigued. The coffee is propping me up and. Uh, and um, not not wanting to speak for you, mate. But um, yeah, you sound you said before you may be a little bit tired as well. So <laughs> apologies ahead of time for that. Yeah. So okay, but we wanted to talk about um, DRM, uh, digital rights management. And I guess I have talked about it a little bit before on the fringe. So I briefly touched about touched on it recently on episode fifty five when we talked about privacy, actually. On episode 42, um, which was hopefully that I burn it regarding e-readers, I sort of even more briefly touched on it. Going back even further, I've discussed some of the elements previously on episode 6, season 2 of Anodized with Clinton Phillips. So those links will be in the show notes if you're interested. But I guess I specifically wanted to tackle this from a, a different angle, not just DRM, but also how we value entertainment and utility and and I guess the drivers behind why DRM exists. So, okay. Um, right. So, um, the problem with DRM, the definition of it, it's kind of a little bit fuzzy. I uh, originally, I thought, oh yeah, I know what DRM is. And <laughs> the funny thing is that it's sort of, yeah, it's not as straightforward as you might think. How, how would you define uh, DRM, Seth? In you know, in in common terms, to me, DRM is any any kind of technology that's applied to 
some form of media that locks it to some kind of platform. You know, that's as that's probably as simple as I can make it. You, know, you can only watch these movies on these devices in this system. You can only read these books on these e-readers, etc. Okay, now that's 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 pretty good definition. Um, just to rip something off Wikipedia, I mean, I never do that, but I'm going to do it now. Uh, it says <laughs> a class of technologies used by hardware manufacturers, publishers, copyright holders, and individuals with the intent to control the use of digital content and devices post-sale. It goes on to add, first-generation DRM software was uh, intent to control copying. Second-generation DRM was the intent to control executing, viewing, copying, printing, and or altering um, of works or devices. The problem, I guess, I've got... (laughs) With all of that, is that the name DRM is sometimes not always used. So sometimes people will call it copy protection or copy prevention or copy control, or you know something like that. It's kind of it's a little bit related to um, software licensing in some regards, depending upon the kind of software you're talking about. And I guess the problem is it's a different balance between utility and entertainment because. You can write software for utility uh, and you can write software for entertainment purposes. So uh, I guess software licensing isn't thought of necessarily as DRM, but at the same time, it has several things in common. But I guess the, the, the other thing we've got to explore a little bit later though is I would hardly call Excel entertainment, although, well, maybe for some people it is, but um, yeah, I wouldn't. Uh, <laughs> whereas... Angry Birds is definitely, you know, software that's 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 entertaining, and um, you know, Stringer, another example. That's uh, that's software that is for the purposes of entertainment, in a sense. So for for music, so you know, it's all. I think that it, it, there are some common aspects that's worth worth talking about. So in 1998. Um, Everyone goes on about DMCA, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. That was passed in the United States to impose criminal penalties, I guess, on those who ever who made uh, technologies available whose intention or primary functionality was to circumvent any copy protection uh, for content or any of technologies for copy protection. Uh, you know, th- th- things like um, the encoding on uh, DVDs, Blu-rays, and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and uh, a cloning and distribution and so on. There's there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of references to DMCA when that was passed, but it is it is in the United States. I do not believe that um, that the exact same law in that uh, in that respect exists in other parts of the world exactly that way. So, in any case, um, so with respect to media content and protection, we've got content that's viewable on a single device or class, I guess you would call it, location, I guess, because, um, you know, if I've got a, a, a Blu-ray, I mean, a single device, I mean, it plays on a Blu-ray, but you can connect it to any multitude of different televisions or even a projector in your own home. So, sort of, that, I guess that's the problem with, you know, because everyone says, okay, it's an, on an iPad or an iPad or an iPhone or uh, an Android tablet or whatever else. It's like, uh, when I say a device or class, that's what I'm talking about. So, like a class of device, I think is a better way of thinking about it than being specific to a device. But in some cases, it is a single device. So you can you're only licensed to watch this on an iPad. That's it. 
And uh, I mean, an example that that, I, that I've come across is the um, there's an app in Australia called Foxtel Go, which I um, which for the um, the local cable content, and you can only watch it on an iPhone or an iPad. I believe it's locked to those devices. So if I wanted to watch it on a on a Mac, I have to run it inside Internet Explorer. There's no actual option to watch it on a Mac natively. So I've got to fire up a VM because Internet Explorer doesn't run on a Mac, even with um, even with that crossover thing that's supposed to work, it doesn't work, by the way. Or a wine bottler, also, just not good enough. But anyway, don't mind that. So, do you have any, any equivalent examples like those um, in North America? Um, yeah, there's all kinds of DRM in North America. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's that I think the things, the, the things that consumers come into contact with most frequently are probably around movies and music, you know, the entertainment media, software, you know, video games, stuff like that. And certainly, um, you know, mobile platforms, that's, that's probably the biggest expansion of, you know, DRM that we've seen in the past few years. It, you know, it touches just about everybody. Like I don't, I don't have anything like, I, I don't have a Blu-ray player. I don't, I don't want anything to do with physical media anymore, so I've moved away from that. But obviously, I buy movies from iTunes. They can only really be played there. There's, you know, if you look online, I'm sure you'll find ways to get around DRM, and I'm sure that's probably something we can touch on later. I think it, it for most people here in this country, it really centers on media. Certainly, there are other, you know, there are other examples of that in, in enterprise software and documents and things like that but i think that's pretty much how we think of it when we think of it yeah fair enough okay cool well um traditionally i think people struggle a lot with content uh protection on media because some content has evolved uh in such a fashion that it was difficult to copy duplicate replicate whatever and others it's traditionally been heavily shared and examples of what I mean is, for example, take a book, uh, and I touched on this on the e-reader episode, episode forty-two, is that you know any, you you can read a book and then you can pass it on to your you know significant other, your children, well depending on whether or not it's Fifty Shades of Grey, or you know your next door neighbour, bloke down the street, whatever you like, you know whoever you like, it's 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 shareable. There's no way you can stop and and uh, and tether that book to your wrist, at least not in some kind of painful way, I guess. But, you know, it's traditionally, it's a highly shareable form of content. Same with magazines, I suppose, newspapers as well. Whether or not people did that regularly or not is, you know, I think that there's been a, a move away from that so that people uh, tend to be more, it's more of a disposable culture. So we'll, we'll buy a book, read a book, and then we'll either throw it away or keep it in a bookshelf, never read it again. But, but sharing seems to be less of a thing and certainly secondhand books seems to be less of a thing. But, um, but books is one avenue, whereas the other avenue, movies, for example, movies have traditionally not been uh, easy to clone or copy, uh, having to go to a movie theater to watch them. And um, yeah, that, that is in, in, in of itself a form of, uh, well, it's not a form of DRM exactly, but it's definitely a form of restricted viewing because you can only watch it if you've got a projector and you've got a screen big enough and a sound system and everything. That's all locked by location. As we've evolved, we've developed um, VHS or Betamax you know, recorders. We could record television, but that's it. There's never been a way to actually clone a movie unless it was on television first. So I think that a lot of people that grew up with the ability to record movies on television will look at 
look at the DRM that's now come in uh, for Blu-rays and DVDs and start to question, well, okay, I used to be able to record this, or I can record this off the TV now. Um, why would I pay money um, you know, to get a copy of this when I could get it for free off the TV? There's a convenience and there's a quality aspect, but now I'm being restricted from making a copy for my own purposes. Why is that the case? So, two different paths, two different sets of expectations, I think. Yeah, definitely. I, I, you know, to your point about sharing stuff, I think there's something inherently human in experiencing some kind of media, entertainment, et cetera, just to use books as an example and wanting, you know, if you enjoy that experience, wanting to share it with somebody else, tell them about it, you know, and the, 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 the idea of loaning a book to somebody is, I think, really core to the way that we kind of share experiences with people where we've had some kind of transformative thought or something in regards to that media and we want this other person to have the same thought or their own thoughts so we can talk about it. And DRM has, for the most part, kind of stifled that. There's, you know, you can tell somebody, hey, here's, you know, we rented this fantastic movie or we bought this fantastic movie on iTunes and uh, it's really, really great. It's maybe one of the best things I've ever seen. We watched it three times over the weekend and here's the name of it. And you can't do anything past that aside from inviting your friend over for a viewing. But um, there are, you know, I, mm. I know that Amazon has worked out a way where you can like lend Kindle books to people for a period of time, you know, you can, you can give somebody certain Kindle books that have been, uh, I guess, flagged for sharing for, I guess it's a two week period or something like that. So there are, there are steps that some companies have taken to kind of bring that experience back, but even still it's, it's limiting. There's, there's a time limit on it. And if you don't read the book in two weeks, it's gone. You You can't read it anymore, which, you know, again, is not, how reality yeah. works. You could loan somebody a book for 10 years and get it back eventually. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's strange how... <laughs> That's assuming you get it back eventually. Right. It's strange how we've, we're trying to like reapproximate those, those innate human desires to, to share experiences, but there's still these asterisks imposed on them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is. It is an interesting. Um, it is an interesting point. Uh, there, there are book clubs, you know, where everyone will read the same book, and sometimes in book clubs, uh, someone can read a book and then pass it on to the next person, and so on. And you know, you don't have to all go and buy a copy of the book in order to be part of a book club. And it's that sort of level. It's a barrier of entry, I think, uh, to those sorts of group discussions. It's sort of it's made it more difficult, and I I, I absolutely agree. And it's one of those things that you know. As we become more individual, and it's 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 almost like the technology and the uh, from a business perspective, they're not they don't see the value. They see more value in an individual or a group, a, a whole bunch of people that individually buy purchase a book, and then they have their own individual experience with that book. Let's say they're not interested in um, we're going to. You know, let you loan this out to whoever you like for the interest of spreading the word about this book because we don't see value in that. All we see is value in each of you individually handing over your money and that's it. And previously, there was no way to, to, to really do that. 
because once you sold the book, then it's out of your control. No longer can the publishers actually enforce anything. It becomes uh, up to the individual how they want to handle that. Whereas with DRM, the mechanism exists. It is actually possible uh, to do some degree of enforcement of what happens with that with that content. You still can't stop someone from lending their Kindle uh, to someone else, I suppose. But um, there's also a level of trust in doing that because if you do do that, then uh, that person has the access to everything on your Kindle, not just that book. And as I sort of suggested in... Um, in episode 42, maybe there'll come a time when it's so cheap that people will just hand around their, 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 their Kindles because it's uh, because they become a, a commodity item in a sense. Yeah, I'll give you my Kindle. You read all my books and vice versa. Yeah, exactly. I mean, why not, right? It's it's the, the, the future extension of uh, the way book lending used to work in the past. So I can see that happening at some point. I don't think we're there yet. I think people are far too um, clingy. Is that the right word? With their technology? Um, you know, it's mine. That's my Kindle. Can't have my Kindle. <laughs> mine. Okay. So, um, with respect to uh, movies and so on, uh, I don't actually have a DVD collection either. I also don't have a Blu-ray player and I've gone to all digital on everything. And I'm trying to think of the number of movies I've bought on iTunes. I think I've bought one. And... I've picked up a couple along the way as part of Christmas uh, promotions, and uh, like I think I've got Home Alone on a on a Christmas promotion. You know the um, iTunes twelve apps of Christmas yeah. or whatever it's called. I think that's what it's called. Yeah. So you know that's that's it. And the reason is that most of the movies that I watch, I already had on DVD previously, and I just rip them, handbrake them, and put them on iTunes. And I just don't watch a lot of movies, so. I do kind of, uh, we, we are just getting Netflix in Australia, but unfortunately, well, I mean, we could have gotten via you know, a VPN to a United States IP address and we could have gotten, and they accepted Australian credit cards and all that other good stuff. But, you know, the, my bandwidth here is terrible. So for me, it's download only. Streaming is not really an option um, as the quality of, our, of this Skype conversation that we commented on before was, uh, uh, is an attest to my bandwidth issues. <laughs> but um, the truth is that, you know, it's frustrating. But anyway, the, the, the truth is that um, that streaming libraries and, and iTunes have their place. But if you ever choose to leave, you can't take your content with you. And, and if you want to play it somewhere else, you can't. So if you've got DRM applied to your iTunes purchases, you can't actually play them uh, elsewhere. I mean, can you, can you take an iTunes purchased movie um, out of iTunes and play it uh, in... In different software, I'm 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 gonna have to feign ignorance. I'm not actually sure. I haven't tried that. I I would say there's probably a way to do everything. The question is, how much of a pain in the neck is it? Sure. Well, I know that iTunes used to have DRM on them on their music, and then they famously uh, took it all off and offered up higher bitrate quality versions. Um, when iTunes Match came out, sort of a um, kind of like a music amnesty. I guess, would you call it that? Yeah, it was a big deal, I remember. And, um, you know, that's something that the music industry pushed back against for a very long time. But I, I think it was a really great move because it, it that kind of stuff, I mean, music, music is one of those things that just kind of, without trying to sound like a hippie, it's just like around you. Like your music is just with you, you know, and, and any roadblocks that you drop into place 
to prevent people from having a reasonably streamlined experience with their own music collection is crazy. So that that was a big deal when they actually were able to do that. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I was also, I think Amazon's um, music as well is also DRM free. I think, has Amazon's been DRM free from the beginning? I'm trying to remember because they launched their music service after, well after iTunes. I want to say that it was. I think that was kind of one of their one of their tent poles when they did launch that service. I could be wrong, but I feel like it was. Yeah, I seem to recall that it was. And that was, as you say, that was one of their tent poles. I'm pretty sure it was um, one of their big features. So um, absolutely right. And uh, honestly, uh, I think that that was uh, one of the things that inevitably, you know, iTunes, I don't think, well, I, I, a part of me wants to think that, Apple pushed for that because they thought it was the right thing to do. But a part of me thinks that there was enough market pressure beyond uh, beyond iTunes such that they I know that they were losing certain people across to Amazon for the reason that it was DRM free. And I do wonder how much of it was was driven by the uh, by market market pressures from outside there from outside. I think that was yeah, I think the timing of it may have been more uh, to do with the market pressure, but I feel like that's something that I had heard about for a long time prior to that. I feel like that was something that Steve Jobs campaigned for for a very long time, uh, and and whenever they finally got it done, may have been due to the fact that it needed to be done then, as opposed to they wanted it to be done then or sooner. But I feel like that was a that was a thing that they kind of championed all along the way. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. That's right. I do recall him mentioning it in the past, but uh, but perhaps that was one of the final straws for them. Either way, good result, good end result. And um, uh, at this point in time, uh, I would like to just quickly talk about our first sponsor, and that's ManyTrix. Now, ManyTrix is a great software development company whose apps do, well, you guessed it, ManyTrix. Their apps include Butler, Chemo, Leech, Desktop, Curtain, TimeSync, Usher, Moom, Name, Mangler, and Witch. So we're going to pick four to talk about. I'm going to start with which. You th- you should think about which as a supercharger for your command tab app switcher. And which is great for ex-Windows users like me. If you've got three or four documents open at once in any one app, then which is beautifully simple pop-up will quickly let you pick exactly the one that you're looking for. Name Mangler. Now, let's say you've got a whole bunch of files you need to rename quickly, efficiently, and in really large numbers. Well, NameMangler can extract metadata from the files and use it to rename those files. It's got, obviously, search and replace, but uh, you can create staged renaming sequences. And if you mess it up, you can just revert back to when you started and have another go. Moom makes it easy to move any of your windows to whatever positions you want. Halves, corners, edges, fractions of the screen, even in the middle if you need to. And then you can save and recall your favorite window arrangements. With a special auto-arrange feature, they also have when you connect or disconnect an external display. It's awesome. Usher. Well, we've just been talking about iTunes and uh, and uh, storing uh, and, and video and DRM, video and DRM and all that stuff. Well, Usher can access any video stored in iTunes, Aperture, iPhoto, and on any connected hard drives on your Mac. And it allows you to easily group, sort, tag and organize them in one place. If you install Perion and Flip for Mac, there's no need to convert anything into an iTunes format so you can watch it. 
So if you've got a video collection that's scattered across different programs and drives, then Usher can help you straighten it all out. That's just four of their great apps. There's another one coming soon. I keep talking about it. You'll see it soon, I'm sure. There's still five more to check out currently available as well. So all of these apps have free trials. And you can download them from manytricks or oneword.com slash pragmatic and try them out before you buy them. They're available to buy as well from, their, the, from those respective pages on the site, or you can get them through the Mac App Store if you prefer to shop through there. However, if you visit that URL, yes, they've extended the offer once again. You can take advantage of a special discount off their very helpful apps exclusively for Pragmatic listeners. Just use the coupon code pragmatic25 that's pragmatic the word and 25 the numbers in a discount code box in the shopping cart and you'll receive 25% off now this offer is only available to pragmatic listeners for a limited time take advantage of it while you can thank you once again to many tricks for their continuing support of pragmatic okay one of the other things that i wanted to talk about uh, before we get on to the software angle of this um I think it comes down to. I'm not. I guess I don't really want to go into too much depth about the technical mechanisms, and the reason is that, you know, I guess I don't find that as in, as interesting as you might think, because the actual practical method by which you know we enforce DRM, to me, it's far more interesting to think about why businesses feel the need to do it and and whether or not it's actually impacting their business by not having it. So I guess to start, uh, to look at it that way, I, I think we need to start looking at it from, we'll start from the consumer angle and then we'll consider the business angle. So I think that from the consumer... Makes sense. Yep, cool. So from the consumer angle... Um, I don't like to label people groups, so let's just call them generic titles. So type A, type B, type C. Um, in no order of precedence, preference, priority, or anything. So, uh, yes, no judgment. Anyway, I um, type A person says, and I don't mean a type A personality either, just in case that's what people are thinking. <laughs> uh, so, I'm doing air quotes here. So, picture air quoting, John air quoting you. Um I should be allowed to copy whatever I want, whenever I want it, however I want to. That's the type A consumer angle. I think it's fair to say type Bs, let's say, would say, um, I, would I would like to pay a fair price to use or watch what I want and like before, where I want, how I want. Um, now type C, these are very special people. I will pay any price maybe even multiple times to use or watch whatever I want, whenever I want, and so on. Now, the reason that I want to sort of broaden, break that down to three categories is to highlight something that I think is interesting. I think the type C group is incredibly small, but when I say small, I mean in terms of volume of volume of transactions. So if you consider that any one person could exhibit any of those behaviors at any time based on the kind of content we're talking about, you may say, say you're a big fan of the Beatles and maybe you've just bought uh, all the Beatles albums on vinyl for some uh, God unknown reason because you like lower quality audio and they look cool apparently. Uh, hmm, anyway. This is when you tell me you love vinyl, isn't it, Seth? This, this, you're gonna no, this I mean, now. I have a spot in my heart for vinyl, and I have quite a bit of it that I've collected over the years, but I much prefer the ease of digital music. 
Okay, that's the spirit. So K- Casey's Casey's going to be upset. Uh, who, who the hell is Casey? Um, no, we're we're past that joke now. Oh, okay. Anyhow, <laughs> um, it quite quite possibly. Uh, yeah, vinyl vinyl is just vinyl is vinyl. Anyway, so um, I guess my point is that when when the Beatles then release their their uh, albums are all released on iTunes, it's like oh, gotta buy all them now because they're now in iTunes format. They're all you know, however many kilobits per second and they've been remastered digitally again more digitally than the last digitally time they were digitally, digitally done, whatever. The point is that I'm going to buy them again because I love them so much and I'm not saying I love the Beatles that much but I'm saying that someone may feel that way. And if that's the case, then you would fall into that type C. So I'm happy to pay whatever price um, and I'll even pay for the same content multiple times in different formats perhaps you know, because I really, really love that content. But let's be honest, most people do not feel that way about the vast majority of music that they listen to or movies that they watch. Because, I mean, well, you can't just love everything. Well, maybe you could. I wonder what that'd be like. That'd be strange. But anyway, people just don't love everything like that. We, we, we have things that we really, really do like, and that's it. So, I think from a transactional point of view, that quantity of transactions is very, very small. I think that's reasonable. Cool. So, the next argument, I think, is the, um, is the, the other end of the spectrum, and that is uh, the hip... You said, you said the word hippie, so I'm going to steal that from you. The hippie argument. Um, free love, baby. So, I should be allowed to copy whatever I want, whenever I want, however I want to, and you can't charge me because that's giving money to the man, whatever that is supposed to mean. So, you know, and obviously, there's going to be an element of that no matter where. I think everyone exhibits an element of that sometimes for some level of content. You know, whether it's recording songs off the radio, I guess. <laughs> do people still do that? I guess they might. I mean, I did when I was a kid and I had... <laughs> well, I had no money when I was a kid. So, you know, I'm going to get out my cassette. No, I, hey, no, everybody did that. I did that. I was just laughing, just thinking about somebody doing it now. Yeah, I know. I wonder if anyone still does that. And it's like, yeah, but because we think about though, I guess we do listen to podcasts and, you know, I'm using uh, audio uh, hijack for recording this, this podcast and you can set up to do timed recordings. There's no reason why you can't record audio from any application you want on your Mac and you could stream radio stations listening to you know, smooth jazz mixes or whatever you'd like to listen to. And there's no reason why you couldn't do that. Uh, and, and many of those radio stations are free. Well, quite unquite free. You're still paying for the bandwidth, but you know what I mean. So, I guess you could do the modern equivalent. But yeah, I, I just remember getting the cassette ta- deck out and uh, and recording the radio, recording my favorite songs and doing a mix, <laughs> doing yeah. a mixtape. Yeah. Oh, how old are we? I think probably the modern equivalent is kids watching music videos and doing stuff on YouTube and then using there seems to be a proliferation of YouTube downloader apps in the app store so I wonder if that's if that's why like people are doing that but just with their phone or something I think you're onto something there because that uh, my oldest two kids do exactly what you described and they'll create uh, little playlists and I'm not sure if they've got to the point of sharing their playlists, but certainly that would make sense uh, at some stage. So, yeah, that's an interesting point. So, yeah, because YouTube, of course, is, you know, again, is, is free, is free, is free. And uh, music videos, uh, I don't know. I, I have this thing with music videos. I kind of like them, but 
I'm more about the music and the bass, so I don't care. Anyway, all right. But other people love music videos and that's great. Jeez, they spend a lot of money on music videos. Why do they spend so much on music videos, Seth? I can't see them generally. I'm listening to the music. <laughs> I don't know. Like I said, it's all about the bass, but anyhow. All right, I'm not sure really I had a point there. Um, music videos are music videos. Okay, so I've got to get to type B. And I think type B is, to be honest, actually a reasonably decent slice of the population. And I think that cognitively we understand uh, that everything comes at a price. It's just how much are we prepared to pay. And that, just to revisit what type B was, is uh, the concept that I would pay a fair price to use and to watch whatever I want. So the problem isn't the concept. The problem is how we each define what is fair. And that's, and that's where the disconnects happen and the arguments begin and you, know, you start having a virtual bar brawl and all that sort of thing. Because you know, what I consider fair and what you consider fair you know, are, are pretty well guaranteed to be very different. It's kind of like pizza toppings. No two people ever agree. So, I mean, with a, with a song, iTunes famously priced a song at uh, was 99 cents originally, if I remember correctly. Yep. Yeah, and some people said that that was too much. Some people said that was, you know, that was actually really cheap because the rest of the album stunk anyway. So I just give me one, one song that I like. And that's changed the face of how albums have made. I've been made, I think, uh, to the to a greater extent in the last decade. But the truth is that agreeing on what is a fair price is the sticking point for a lot of this stuff. So if we assume that we can we can ignore the type C transactions because they are relatively rare. And if we consider that the the people that are the, the hippies in the audience are also statistically speaking relatively rare, I think most people fit into the type B, which is I'm happy to pay a fair price, but the arguments are always over what constitutes a fair price. And not not everyone will be ever no one will ever be happy with whatever price is set because someone is guaranteed to say, Oh, that's too much. No matter what that price is, even one cent. It's like, couldn't they round it down to zero? Someone would say that. Yeah. It's true. Okay. So so that's the consumer angle. Now, the rather obvious, is it obvious? I guess it is. We'll find out. Business angle. So let's just, uh, as I said, state the obvious, which is entertainment or, or in the case of software, if it's time-saving software or, or entertainment software. These things, it, it, they take time and time and people power. Therefore, they take money to create. Time is money. There you go. Unless, of course, people like to work for free. But generally, you know, they don't. So, money is required up front to invest in a project. doesn't matter what it is. You need to invest time in order to create music. You have to compose it. You have to record it. It has to be distributed. Some of those things have gotten easier, but irrespective, you need something up front. And that sort of upfront investment, you know, means that in order to break even meaning that you get back, you know, whatever you put in plus any expenses. You know, if there's no break-even amount as a result of whatever it is you've created, then you cannot have a sustainable business. So if you're doing something purely uh, altruistically, you have no interest in making any money, you have alternative revenue streams to sustain your existence or you your existence is sustained on the um, the... the graciousness of others and or whatever, then that's different. I'm talking about people that actually want to do 
create content as as a business. So and, and you know people think about musicians and independent musicians and so okay they're a business. You know they they're out there they're not out there to make music um, just just for you to smile and say that's a really good song. You know they they're interested in making money from it. So you know it is a business. And you know, they, you know, you can go to a recording company and get a contract with them and all that other rubbish. And you know, that's it's still it's a business, you know. So that's really what I'm talking about. So breaking even matters, uh, and making profit matters even more because I mean, otherwise most people wouldn't bother. I say, oh, I already broke even. So every so the concept from a business angle, if you simplify it greatly, every stolen or copied widget, whatever I create, music, song, movie, software, every everything that's stolen or copied is lost revenue, simplistically speaking. Now, obviously, that excludes the whole word of mouth promotion idea. And the idea of giving away free samples is as old as time, wherever you're selling, well, maybe not that old, but certainly as old as people have been selling things. So giving away free samples, you know, stimulates the whole idea of word of mouth. So, oh, this thing was free. I tried it out. It was really good. You should give it a shot. They go along and they say, oh, sorry, we gave away free samples, but it's only $1. Okay, cool. Well, I'll get that for a dollar. I'll buy that for a dollar. <laughs> um, oh, what movie was that out of? I think it was out of, that was out of RoboCop, yeah. I think, wasn't it? Yeah, Jeez. RoboCop. Yeah, uh, that's it. Oh, the original and the best with the Ed, uh, was Ed 209. Totally reliable robots. Anyway, mm-hmm. <sighs> it's a good movie. Anyway, uh, have you seen the newer, the 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 most recent one? They've redone it. I actually haven't. It's been in my queue for a while. I'll I'll get around to it at some point. But the original is one of my all time favorites. Yeah, it's it's an awesome movie. I watched it that many times. <sighs> yeah. Anyway, no, I'm I'm the same. I've got it on my to watch list, but I haven't watched it. Maybe it was the DRM. Anyway, okay, so um, so free samples and uh, and so on. So the simplistic way is well, if I find a method by which I can lock down and ensure that every single copy is paid for, then I should, in theory, generate more revenue. In theory, so the debate I think circles around the choice by the content owner or creator choosing to give it away for free on their terms versus whether or not the end customer chooses to do it on on the customer's terms when they would choose to do it. So let's assume that you've only got a small percentage of the population that it knows enough to circumvent DRM or to obtain copies that do not have DRM on it of the content in question. Well, you have to assume that's the vast minority of people. Services like Napster, for example, made it easy for a lot of people. You download the software, search the song, download, you got it, you know. But doing torrents and stuff and, and you know, for a while there was LimeWire and all that and these different the, the different mechanisms, you know, they're not for people that are, well, not for the faint of heart, I guess, I, I, for the want of a better way of saying it, uh, of finding it's not easy for the average person to use. So a lot of that is... is uh, you're getting DRM, th- um, you're not having DRM circumvented through the obscurity of how to get around it. So ultimately though, I think that from, from a business point of view, it's more about they want control of giving away the free samples and saying, you know what, we're going to have a promotion, you have free samples for this long and that's it. 
Whereas, you know, if you hand that over to the general populace, then you have no control. So a lot of it just comes back to that control over the flow of sales. But anyway. Okay. Uh, and then, of course, it comes down to the debate around what price is fair. And, and this is one of the ones that, honestly, I don't know what to think because you look at all the overheads that recording studios and running a record label has. And there's the promotional aspect. There's organ people that organize the tours. There's all these different people with their hands out, middlemen, middle people, whatever, multiple levels of middle people in order to just get the band up on stage to perform a song at a venue, you know, for example, or setting up the recording studio. And then they've got people that do the mixing and the editing and the... Oh, dear me. You know, there just seems to be so much to do and all of that cost... And it's hard for the general populace to say, for, for, for me to say, um, even you know, a little bit of knowledge being dangerous, knowing the little bit that I do about how uh, audio is put together uh, for an album, you know, the, 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 how can I judge if $20 for an album is actually a ripoff or not? I, I have no way to gauge that. No, I think as a... As a, as a- a regular consumer with no knowledge of the industry and the production and all that stuff, it is hard to understand the the breadth of work required to produce a recorded album of songs. And, you know, I'm sure if you really examine that process, you could find a way to trim a lot of fat from it as, you know, the rise of independent musicians selling their own stuff online can can attest to. But it's also, you know, the price that the market will bear, right? It's not so much, is it fair or not? But there's a certain point at which people will say, I'm not going to spend $15 on this album. I'll spend $10 on this album. And the industry has to be prepared to make the money that they want up somewhere else. If if $10 is what people are willing to pay for an album of songs and they want $15, they're going to have to find that $5 somewhere else. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. But I guess my frustration is the price that the market will bear. I, I um, it's true. It's absolutely true. But geez, I hate that because it's it what the price the market can bear is is about how much spare money is available in the market and how desirable something is. And those are two very intangible, uh, very two very intangible things. It may well have been the case. Uh, 10 years ago, that $30 for a CD was acceptable. But now, when you can get, if you get 12 songs on an album and they're available for 99 cents each or something like that, well, geez, you know, suddenly the the cost of creating the music, I guarantee you, has gone up, not down for the most part, especially for a professional studio recorded album because, you know, salaries have gone up, rent goes up, electricity's gone up, everything goes up which means that it's going to be more expensive in terms of raw dollars to make it, and yet the prices have gone down. And, you know, obviously, therefore, the the price the market can bear has dropped. Does that mean that it's no longer worth it? Or does it mean that that's one of the reasons why record companies are, are not doing so well is because they can't, uh, the, rec- the, the, the market cannot support uh, what was previously uh, a much higher margin business. And, you know, now it can no longer, the market can no longer bear those prices. Yeah, I think I think it's all of those things, right? I think 
anybody who's worked in the music industry can point to a million ways in which the 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 path that you take to create an album is filled with bloated excess. There's, you know, a million different ways where money gets handed off to people who barely have a role in in bringing that album to life and that's just how the business works. There's just like you said earlier, there's a million people with with their hands in the pot. So if, you know, if the music industry is not doing well because their entire business model is predicated on paying a lot of people who have very little to do with the actual production of the media, that's that's the music industry's problem to solve. That's not the consumer's problem to solve. And if the consumer decides I'm not getting value for the $10 or the $15 that I'm spending, they're going to take that money and buy something else with it. And again, that's not, I mean, that it, that in no uncertain terms, that is the music industry's problem to solve. But you know, if they're going to stick to a business model and a, a method of production that is, by most accounts, antiquated and expect consistently positive results in a completely, completely different and ever-changing market, you know, that's, that's, you can't point to consumers and go, you guys did this, you know, you, you did this to us. It, you, you have to adapt. Like adaptation is critical to anything that grows and evolves, whether biological or otherwise. And, you know, there's, there's been a lot of ink spilled over this already, so I'll stop. But it's one of those things where when I start thinking about it, it just seems, (laughs) it seems so silly that they get so indignant about it. Like, oh, consumers that, you know, you're killing us with YouTube's killing us because people would rather, people would rather watch this, you know, for free once or twice than, than buy it. And it's like, well, that's, that's fine then. Like, that's the way it goes. Think of another way to make money. That's how any business works. If your business stops working, you need to think of another way to make money. Yeah, exactly right. And I and I come back just quickly circling back to the music videos and how much money goes into making a music video. I so, oh, you've got to have a music video. Really? Well, prior to uh, about, I think, the uh, late 70s or early 80s, something like that, most music didn't come with a music video, you know? So, I don't know, thank Countdown, thank, I don't know, MTV, whoever, for popularizing it and then making that an excess that you then require. The vast majority of music that's listened to is listened to without a video clip. And let's be honest, most video clips are, you know, music videos are confusing and have very little to do with the song and (sighs) get off my lawn and all that (laughs) stuff. Anyway... (laughs) Okay, cool, lovely. Uh, before we go on any, um, any further, I want to talk about our uh, second sponsor for this episode and they're a new sponsor for the show and that's Casper. Now, Casper, they're an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price you'll pay in a traditional bricks and mortar retailer. The mattress industry has inherently forced consumers into paying notoriously high markups, but Casper, it's revolutionizing the mattress industry by cutting the cost of dealing with resellers and showrooms and passing the savings directly onto you, the consumer. So let's talk about some of the big reasons to consider Casper for your next mattress. First of all, there's quality. A Casper mattress is resilient and provides long-lasting support and comfort. Now, Casper's mattress is one of a kind. It's a hybrid that combines both premium latex foam and memory foam in the same mattress. And all Casper mattresses are manufactured in America. These two technologies, they come together for a better night's sleep and you end up having brighter days following. 
So the cost, I mentioned that already, but mattresses can often cost well over one and a half grand, but Casper mattresses cost between $500 for a twin size mattress, $600 for a twin XL, $750 for a full size, $850 for queen size, and $950 for a king size mattress. I mean, it seems like it's impossible, and Casper always seem to get feedback from consumers wondering how that's possible, but it is. So for cost and quality, in short, they are an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. But there's more, there's the convenience angle to consider. Buying a Casper mattress is completely risk-free because Casper offers free delivery and returns within a 100-day period. That's 100 days. Now, it's that simple. One of the problems with a showroom environment is that lying on a bed for just a few minutes, uh, three or four minutes, you know, in a showroom, well, that doesn't actually bear much correlation to whether that's going to be the right mattress for you. I mean, it could take days, weeks, or months to figure that out. And that's why Casper has turned that buying process into a risk-free experience by offering so many days that you can trial it for. Now, oh, I should say how many nights, actually. Casper understand the importance of, um, of truly trying out that mattress that in all reality, you will spend a third of your life lying on. Now, to find out more about them, head over to casper.com slash pragmatic to learn a lot more about their mattresses and enter the coupon code pragmatic for $50 off of your order. Casper are transforming mattress purchasing. Try one and find out why they are so good. Thank you to Casper for sponsoring Pragmatic. The next stop on this, uh, the the DRM and the value of things, <laughs> uh, of, of media train, I guess, is uh, a couple of ideas regarding the market value, which is, I guess, uh, so comes back to a I want to start with the word abundance. And what I mean by that is, I guess it's a, it's, it's a matter of accessibility. It seems to me that there was a time you go back to when television first came out. You had no option prior to that that if you wanted to see a movie, you had to go to the theater. And before there were movies, you wanted to go out to see some kind of audio-visual entertainment for the want of a better way of saying it you'd have to go to a quote-unquote theater where you would watch uh, a play, you know, a la Broadway and so on and so forth. Now, that entertainment medium still exists. It's not huge, but it still exists. So, movie theaters come along and so on, and, you know, they still exist too. They're, They're getting very expensive, you know, still less expensive generally than going to the theater. But, um, you know, They've sort of ba- they're balancing out to a price that, that that segment of the market will bear for people that want to go and have the big screen experience. And certain movies, certainly, they are better in a big screen experience, just like certain movies are actually better acted as a play rather than as a movie. So, again, it, it becomes a little bit more, uh, more of a specialized niche, as it were. But the mass market follows uh, the cost and the abundance angle. And what I mean by that is... TV started out being very rare, very expensive. Cost comes down and then they become very abundant. And screens are now everywhere. Think about screens on your phone, the on your computer monitor, your laptop screen. You know, it's all digital now. So it makes, well, practically all, which means that there's no limit, technologically speaking, to what you can display on whatever you might have in front of your face, including a television set. So... 
it's there, there is no more barrier to that. And for, for, for music, anything that can show a picture generally has audio that goes with it. You know, unless it's one of those silent movies that I've heard about and someone's playing a piano, you know, as you're riding on the train to work in the background. So you can, you know, anyway. Um, so, you know, the truth is that, you know, these, the, with all of the abundance of devices that can play audio and you can watch video on, that means that there's a lot of content, the opportunities to watch content, and that drives the creation of more content for people to consume. And that drives down inevitably the price. So the, the days of making lots of money off of movies, off of music, um, you know, th those days are, are rapidly diminishing because the problem is that it's so abundant that the average average price is being driven down so that the amount of profit you make will be less. I mean, there'll always be blockbusters. There'll always be big albums that make it big. There'll be books, you know, like Harry Potter and, you know, and so on where people, individuals do make lots and lots of money. But the days when the average person could make uh, a lot of money by making it, you know, I think it's getting harder and harder to make those sorts of values unless you are truly uh, very, very lucky or very, very talented. And maybe that's okay, but, you know, anyway. So, value. Abundance drives price and down. Perceived value, I think, perceived value is important as well. But the converse is true, I think, as well. So I agree. <laughs> well said. Okay, cool. Fair enough. Well, that was easy. There you go. Um but there's another angle to consider. What about passion, desire, and you know, I'll, I'll use the word lust. Because honestly, from a music um, a technological point of view, there is no question. I know a lot of people in the audience listening to this, listening to this episode, uh, have a certain passion, desire, and lust for technology. So, you know, we're drawn to uh, the newest, the newest gadget let's say. And sometimes, you know, it's the same thing with uh, with content. So, we're automatically drawn, let's say, some people are fans of, of a certain artist like U2, like U2 or, um, oh, I don't know, I always pick on U2, but, <laughs> um, and I know there's people that don't like U2, that's okay. But, you know, the Beatles, were they still together? I think that's a bad example. Current musicians, um, Coldplay, um, Robbie Williams, Oh dear. Anyway, my point is people are making music all the time. Fans of that stuff will want to listen to that stuff. They, uh, you know, people have, uh, have a passion for listening to their new content and that drives the perceived value up, uh, up higher. So, the more passion, the more desire and lust you have, despite the fact that whatever you're peddling, whatever it is, what entertainment it is, is of approximately the same average value because of the abundance of other people's content that passion, desire, and lust, that drives up your perceived value and you can get away with charging more. And that's okay because less people have to, less people will buy it, but the people that do are willing to pay a lot more. And if you want an example, then all you need to do is look at Apple and look at what Apple sells. And I know they don't sell content exactly. Uh, Apple don't make TV, um, TV movies, TV shows, movies, yeah, or music. They don't, at least not yet, at least that we don't know about yet. <laughs> so, I don't know. Um, rumors are rumors, but who knows? Anyway, um, was that me starting a rumor? Perhaps. Anyhow, <laughs> I have no inside knowledge. 
but anyhow, so yeah, no, Apple, t- the Apple channel. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so yeah, anyway, so I, I honestly think that Apple is sitting in a, is positioned and has positioned itself as being a desirable, uh, some say fashionable, I guess. People are passionate about it, despite the fact that, you know, computers and, and MP3 players are abundant and were abundant when that when when Apple were were around, you know their brand has reached a point where people's desire for it has pushed up its perceived value. Despite the fact that a Windows laptop can do most anything a Mac laptop can do, whether or not it has more or less problems, well that's open for discussion. But the truth is, I can still edit an Excel spreadsheet in either, and it will still work. So, anyway. Maybe that's going too far off of topic, but well, anyway. I mean, just to yeah, just comments? to kind of emphasize your point about Apple, I think the the analogy that you were trying to create is that in that case, you, Apple is creating an experience the way those other artists are creating an experience, and while the hardware itself may retain more long term value both to the user and in the market. People are willing to pay more for these devices and and entrance into the you know Apple ecosystem because they want to have that experience the way that somebody will pay more for a movie or an album or something because they want to have that experience with that artist. Yeah, absolutely right. And I think it's one of those things that uh, people. Uh, I think there's a lot of. Uh, I hear indignation you know, about things they cost too much. And, you know, it's like, I know there's been a lot of ribbing and joking and, and I, about the the price of the, the gold Apple watches, for example. And it's like, well, it's about the price the market will bear. But, you know, the truth is that there will always be people that are prepared to pay that. They don't have to sell a lot of them. Uh, this is getting off topic. I don't want to talk about the Apple watch. But anyway, so... Passion for a product, a passion for media uh, will definitely drive up its value. There's no question. But the funny thing is, uh, can you sit in the place? Can you can you, can you you create content in an area there where there is abundance and still have people that are passionate about it that are ha- happy to pay more? And I think the answer is definitely yes, but it's about finding that niche and that's difficult. How much has this got to do with DRM? Well, I guess the reason is that I want to think about where is DRM primarily pushed in consumer areas, and I'm gonna pu- I'm gonna put forward a suggestion that DRM is pushed most heavily. Uh, traditionally, it has been pushed most heavily in consumer areas of abundance with low levels of passion, desire, or lust for the content. So, examples are, of course, DVDs, Blu-rays, movies, um, and the vast majority of music. Is that all the kinds of content that are out there? I guess not. But has how much DRM is there in podcasts? Actually, not a heck of a lot. I mean, that's subscri- you're talking about um, subscription. Oh, subs- RSS subscription feeds. Oh God, sorry. Help me out, Seth. What's it called again? I I don't know what you're going for. What What did we? You know how um you can subscribe. You can have a um authenticated feeds. There you go. Sorry, that's what I was trying to get at. Sorry. Okay, okay. So, that's pretty rare, I think, in podcast land. And 
people, I don't know, I guess maybe this is the hippies, hippies talking, saying we don't want that. That's, you know, let's get off our hippie lawn. Um, anyway, so I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? I, th- I think that I think that DRM is pushed in the areas where there is there is abundance, and therefore you're trying to extract the maximum amount of value out of the low. The although you get you get high volume, but the market can't bear much of that, uh, much of the higher cost, and therefore you want to you, you you tend to lock that out with DRM. What do you think? Or oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm not sold myself on that idea. I th- I think there's something to that. I think that. DRM probably makes more sense in a market that has, let's say, a lot of saturation points. So mainstream media, uh, you know, pop culture, movies and music and things like that. That's, you know, to your point, I think that's where DRM makes the most sense for companies because even though it's an inconvenience to customers in some capacity, uh, there's the volume of people willing to pay for that content is so much, so much bigger, and the companies are willing to, I guess, quote unquote, take the hit if if it even is for them that they will incur because there's more people to just make up, you know, the people that won't buy it for that reason. And I think with stuff like podcasts or independent music or independent movies where you know things are distributed. Uh, through different channels, it, it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense to try to get in front of that because the potential for alienating the people that are buying it, I think, is a lot higher. And so it's, I, I think it's just a game of numbers for them. But then you look at stuff like, you know, what Louis C.K. is doing, where he's a he's a very well known comedian and he's releasing mainstream comedy content, you know, himself, and it's very cheap and there's no DRM and you can do whatever you want with it. And he's been extremely successful with it. And I'm wondering if there will ever come a point where the, the larger industry as a whole looks to examples like that and says, maybe we should rethink this because people really seem to like this and maybe there's more money to be made doing it this way than doing it the other way. I I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon, but I think as we start to see more examples of, larger, more mainstream content providers and artists taking that road for themselves, I think it it definitely, it can trigger that conversation more readily. Absolutely. I think um, I want to come back to that in just a second. But I just before we do, I want to talk about our, um, our third and final sponsor for this episode, and that's Hover. Hover is a domain registrar that stands apart from the rest. Owning and controlling your own domain is critical. If you're developing an app, writing a blog, running a business, a project, wanting to keep the same email address for life, for example, or if you have any presence at all on the web, a domain is the single best way for other people to find you and the best way to buy and manage domain names is with Hover. If you don't currently have a domain name, Hover can help you find the perfect one just for you. Hover supports a huge list of TLDs and their domain search is truly amazing. You type in your best idea and it tells you not only whether that domain is available, but it suggests dozens of other close matches that might be just as good or even better than your original idea. Sometimes people sign up for different hosting services and they can offer a free domain name as part of the deal. But read the fine print because sometimes they'll charge a mint to transfer that domain out when you want to leave and you could end up losing it. 
Keeping control of your domain using a service like Hover puts you in control and as little as five minutes, you can be up and running with a brand new domain. Hover's tools are so easy to use and follow that most people won't need any help getting set up. But if you do, their support team is always available to help you out. They're famous for their no wait, no hold, no transfer phone service. No kidding. A real living human being will help you. Now, Hover, they don't try to upsell you on every little detail, like who is privacy. You know, always talk about that one because everyone should have that. Well, it's just included with Hover. There's no, there's no flashy ads, no pushy BS. In short, it's actually pleasant to use, which for a domain registrar, in my experience, is a rare thing. So I know that that's all wonderful and all that, but Hover also offer bulk discounts for 10 domains and up. So the more domains you have with Hover, the cheaper it gets for each. That's a bonus. Now, they also have a reliable email service and you can get a terabyte of storage space if you want it to. Hover uh, offer email forwarding just for just $5 a year. So they have a few other things worth checking out as well. But finally, the thing that I think that brings so many people uh, with existing domains to Hover is their valet transfer service, and it's free. Point Hover in the right direction with your existing domain and register information, and they'll take care of everything. You don't have to worry about messing it up you know, when you're transferring your domains because you know, Hover do it all the time. And it's going to go much more smoothly if they do it uh, because they do it all the time, and you only do it yourself once every few years maybe. So that's a long list of reasons why I moved my domains there years ago and that's why they're still at Hover and that's why they're going to stay there. So check out Hover at hover.com slash pragmatic and find out just how easy it is to grab your own domain or to transfer your existing domains to Hover using the coupon code EXACTLY to get 10% off your first purchase. Let Hover valet your domain stress away today. Thank you once again to Hover for sponsoring Pragmatic. So... You brought up my closing point, so we may as well get to that then, I think. And that is, can we ever really, truly get away from DRM? I have concerns. And I guess my concern is that wherever there is someone creating content for a business, there's always going to be someone out there who is either... Um, naive enough, inexperienced enough. Um, they just want to try it on and say, the simplistic viewpoint is that if I lock it down and force people to pay, then every purchase I get is a guaranteed amount of income. Therefore, that is the better answer. Whilst they ignore the fact that people are perfectly happy uh, and would prefer to get things for free with a minimal amount of advertising or would be able to like to pay for it once and then be able to free to replicate it, copy it as many times as they like because they feel a degree of ownership. It's like a, it's like uh, I buy a hammer, I can use a hammer on whatever, sh on whatever nail I choose, not just the nail that you tell me I'm allowed to use it on. And if I want to use it on the second or third nail, that's extra, you know. So, I don't know. I, I just get this sinking feeling. I know you're saying that, that you think it could happen someday. I, I'm not convinced. I think there'll always be someone somewhere selling something that is going to be locked down by DRM. I, I honestly, I think it's inevitable. I think people are going to just say, uh, like businesses are simply going to look at it simplistically and it's just going to be one of those lessons that people never learn. 
like uh, I mean, business. Well, I think the the reasons and the rationale for businesses using DRM now in the consumer space, at least, are different than the the place where they started. Right. So we talked about this earlier. It was more about copying and redistribution and sharing and things like that. And now, at least, you know, looking at the consumer space, the consumer electronics space, I think it's really more about platform lock-in and not so much copying content around and sharing it, right? I think it's more about, I have all these movies and all this music and it only really works with my iPhone and my Apple TV and my iPad and my Mac. And I have all of this Amazon stuff and it works with my Kindle Fire and <clears throat> my Fire Phone and, you know, whatever, whatever else, whatever other devices are part of that platform. I think it's more about creating this umbrella experience between devices and software that, quite honestly, Apple has been doing for a really long time. And I think other companies are looking at it and going, you know what, that strategy makes a whole lot of sense. And, you know, it used to be everybody gave Apple a lot of crap about, you know, the, the platform lock-in, but everybody's doing it now. It's not just Apple. That is the predominant business strategy for consumer electronics is get them in, have them buy all these satellite devices, use our content, and that's it. You're like, you're here now. And you can you can go and do something else if you want. And certainly like, you know, there's ways to listen to this content or view this content in other places. But it's again, it's not easy to do. Most normal people aren't going to do it. And most normal people aren't going to say, you know what, uh, I really, I'm going to switch my entire, you know, entertainment platform from Apple to Google Nexus devices and Google, you know, TV or whatever that, you know, the equi equivalent products are. Most people aren't going to do that. So I think the notion of DRM now is not so much about distribution and copying. It's more about once you're here, you're here. And these things only work with these things. And you just keep going in that direction. Yeah, it's more about increasing friction um, to leave. Well, that's the concept of, I guess, of, of platform lock-in is to to provide a path of less resistance to stay within the platform and a path of greater resistance uh, to leave the platform to jump to either in part or in whole to a different platform. And yeah, the 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 relative levels of friction. Uh, in in this case, in those cases, are uh, uh, I guess it it it, pre it prevents and and it's funny, you know. I was just thinking about this. Apple's strategy has been apparent uh, for quite some time, and and people still attribute so many things that Apple does as being oh, yeah, Apple is doing this for you know the good of everybody or the good of the, the uh, you know. It's like this. See, I I do wonder whether or not that that. That that store that uh, that trope, whereby Apple is doing the best thing for everybody, whether or not people are starting to wake up and realize that you know it's like you say, platform lock-in is a viable strategy and it's worked well for them. Steve Jobs was even it was even quoted. I think it was in the um, biography, uh, in the most in uh, Walter Isaacson's biography. As saying, and that, and that, that way, the quote was, and that way we can increase their, their lock in to our devices. And it's like, well, yeah, he, he wasn't saying that, he, that, that. That's businessman Steve Jobs talking. And 
you know, although I don't, I don't recall if he actually ever said that publicly, but you know, it's so DRM in that case, if you put DRM on top of platform lock-in, you've essentially put DRM on top of a form of DRM. <laughs> yeah. And maybe that's why they had less issue letting it go. Yeah, it's it's interesting to note though that for the longest time, a lot of the companies that make hardware now were only making software and content before and Apple was a hardware company that made hardware and software, right? So like their strategy has been apparent for a while. You have the hardware, you view the content on it. But Google was a search engine. And now, you know, they acquired Motorola and I guess they let Motorola go, right? I think Motorola is not part of Google anymore. Am I remembering that correctly? Oh, honestly, I actually don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Either way, Google, you know, was not a hardware company. And now they have Nexus hardware and entertainment hardware. Amazon is a storefront that has their own hardware for their own content. So, you know, it's these are companies that arguably are, you know, better, worse, other when it comes to making these hardware experiences, but they have realized that this is a good play, that, you know, Apple was not stupid to do this. They were not trying to do, you know, something so secretive. It was always out in the open that this was how this worked. And I think a lot of other companies are coming around to it. You could probably point to a million other examples, not just, you know, the couple that I've rattled off where there are companies that have decided to make their own devices solely for the purpose of keeping people using the product that they were known for using. Yeah, no, it's a good point. And uh, now that uh, Google and Amazon have, I don't like to say copied, but certainly um, chosen certain aspects of Apple's strategy and uh, are doing that as well, that yeah, some of the, the need to have DRM is, uh, is perhaps uh, reduced. But by and large, I don't think the DRM will ever completely die. I think it'll be one of those things kind of like the, uh, the theater and the movie theater, uh, I think it's, there's always going to be that element and there'll always be something that is locked down in some way. Perhaps DRM uh, on it, as it stands will only become something for those companies that don't have a platform lock-in so as a method of locking in without having a platform. Maybe that's what will happen. But I, I, I would love to believe in a utopian future where there was no DRM, but I just can't see it happening. Uh, it's, it's unfortunate, but irrespective... You know, I'm not sure what we can do to change that, I guess. Ultimately, the market will decide whether people are prepared to pay for something and that comes back to the passion, the lust and the desire for the content that's being created. And so long as there is some of that, I think there will always be people that are greedy and that want to have uh, DRM applied if they don't have their own platform. So uh, it's hard to value entertainment. Um but just quickly before we wrap on this on this topic, uh, I talked a little bit before about software, and one of the things that's been interesting to watch is the the move from uh, software lock in and then connecting up software to software to web services and and having an ongoing subscription type of of thing, because I think it's generally agreed that platform lock in for uh, for music like streaming audio services is very much a form of DRM, whether or not you call it that specifically or not. 
I think that there's very little question that it that that Pandora and um, what's the other one? Spotify. Yeah. You can argue that they are forms of DRM. You know, from the platform point of view, you stop paying your subscription, all of that music is gone. You don't have it anymore. And, you know, that's that's an issue. I said Pandora. I didn't mean Pandora, did I? What? <laughs> oh, it's late. <laughs> I meant Spotify. Anyway, so what am I getting at? What am I getting at? So software is now going down a similar path. Perhaps though not all were for the same reasons. So Microsoft is going and pushing... Office 365, you have a monthly subscription or an annual subscription, you get access to their software. Well, if you don't pay up, then your licensing, it goes into, it's not, it doesn't kill the product exactly, but it cripples it in certain respects, certain important respects. But uh, it's one of those things that, you know, again, I think that that's a form of, you can't copy it because it goes along with a login that's tied to a web service, which then they can shut down. And that's, you know, it's a licensing model. You could argue that licensing for, for use of software is is the same kind of thing as licensing for access to a platform and license, like your Apple ID is no different. It's just that you're licensing access to the music that you've purchased through their system. Maybe you have a local copy. That's great. Does it become crippled if your Apple ID expires? Well, I guess not, but you're still locked in on their platform. But um, I just thought it's an interesting parallel. Yeah, I, I've, I've come around on the notion of software subscription services like that though, because, you know, at the office between Adobe and Microsoft office and some of the other stuff we use, it, it made more sense for us to move to that model because, you know, at just talking about the bottom line, it was cheaper and easier for us to always have the latest versions and have support for those things on a on a month to month basis than buying a yearly license and then having to debate if we wanted to update it and then you know earmarking the money for that and doing that stuff so i i think there's tremendous value in in some of those kind of platform choices for for certain types of customers but you know that that gets to a whole other discussion about the notion of owning anything, owning anything digital, owning any kind of software, any kind of music, you're, you know, I'm sure if you talk to a lawyer, they'll tell you, well, you don't really, you never really own it. You own the license to use it. And you know, it's, it's another whole rabbit hole we could go down. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And I, and I've to some extent come around too on, um, on subscription software as well. And, uh, cause I've been using office 365 now for, uh, probably getting on about seven or eight months now and um, yeah, it's been fine. You know, it's not an issue. Every now and then it says, oh, I can't authenticate with this server. Do you want to retry later? I'm like, yeah. But um, it always does eventually connect up and authenticate and everyone smiles and makes happy Excel spreadsheets and Word documents. <laughs> Maybe not the Word documents, but anyway. So yeah, it does work. It does work, yeah. And I, and I do think that subscription software is, uh, is a better model from... You know, and from a software development point of view as well, because you get a more consistent, reliable uh, income. But um, you know, pros and cons. But I think ultimately, uh, that is also here to stay. But uh, uh, in any in any case, so um, I don't know if I had too much else I wanted to say on the to on the topic. Did you have any other thoughts you wanted to add before we wrap it up? No, I don't think so. 
like I said, we could we could go down a million other rabbit holes, but uh, I think that's good for now. Cool. Okay, well, before we do go, um, before the show ends uh, and it is ending in a few, uh, few more episodes' time, there are only two more after this, uh, I have one final, 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 final vote that the listeners can participate in if they choose to. You can go to techdistortion.com slash pragmatic. Uh, and or oh, there's a link in the show notes you can follow and you can vote on your favorite episodes of the podcast it's anonymous if you want it to be and i'll be telling the results of the final episode but as an incentive for those people that are interested i'm going to pick out three random entries that have a valid email address and i'll announce them during the the, the winners as you as it were uh during the final episode and they'll get a, uh, a free sticker sent out to them for uh, for participating so uh, if you'd like, uh, if you'd like the chance to win a free sticker, then why not uh, go and fill that out? So, if you'd like to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi, and my site TechDistortion.com is where this podcast is hosted, along with all my other writing and other stuff. If you'd like to send any feedback, then please use the feedback form on the website. That's where you'll also find the show notes for this episode under Podcasts Pragmatic. You can also follow Pragmatic Show on Twitter to see show announcements and other related things. Uh, I'd also like to thank uh, my guest host, uh, Seth Clifford, for coming back on the show once again. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you, mate? That would probably be Twitter. Um, Seth Clifford there. And if you want to see the work we do, uh, you can visit nickelfish.com for our client work and heyderby.com for our products. Fantastic. All right, cool. Um, I'd also like to thank our three sponsors for this episode. Firstly, uh, Many Tricks. Uh, if you're looking for some Mac software that can do many tricks, remember, specifically visit this URL, manytricks, or one word, .com slash pragmatic for more information about their amazingly useful apps and use the discount code pragmatic25. That's pragmatic, the word, and 25, the numbers, for 25% off the total price of your order. Hurry, it is only for a limited time. I'd also like to thank a new sponsor for this episode, and that's Casper. Casper sell mattresses online and with an amazing 100-day return policy, amazing mattresses and prices that beat showrooms, you should give them a shot. Visit casper.com slash pragmatic for more information and use the coupon code pragmatic to save $50 off the price of your order. Casper are transforming mattress purchasing. Try one and find out why they're so good. And finally, our third sponsor for this episode, uh, thanks to Hover for once again sponsoring Pragmatic. Hover is a domain registrar that's simple and easy to use with a valet service for your existing domain transfers, making it simply the best way to buy and keep full control of your domain names. Check out Hover at hover.com slash pragmatic and find out just how easy it is. Use the coupon code EXACTLY to get 10% off your first purchase. Let Hover valet your domain stress away today. And that's it. So thanks once again, everyone, for listening. And uh, thanks again, Seth. Thanks for having me. It's been great.
the web for. Base state technology sleep in your mission already, but mattresses can often cost. Well, I want to fuck cash message cost between $500 for twin size mattresses. I am not kidding you right now. <laughs> that is Siri trying to help me with my ad read. Thank you, Siri. <laughs> God. Siri, go die now. Okay. <sighs> okay, lovely. Good. I'm glad we had this chat, Siri. Moving on. 